Welcome to another episode of On The Line. I'm Joe Mullings flying solo today. Well, sort of. Uh, Today we were out of office with our session up at Harvard Business School, uh, the healthcare conference. And on this, I want to share with you some great, great people who had sat in on the Shake Up the C-Suite panel. And that includes Peter Stebbins, Frank Gentile, Amar Swani, and Mira Sani, who all brought a different perspective of what to do when something goes sideways in the C-suite. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, certainly feel free to comment below your thoughts on the exchange. Be well. All right, well, thanks everybody for for uh, for joining us. I apologize, I did ask them to bring margaritas out because it's Friday afternoon and and we're all ready for it, yet. but we're at the wrong place. Maybe maybe next year we'll, uh, we'll be able to do that. So. Um, yeah, so we're excited about the, the session, and, and really what we do is uh, these conferences, a lot of the conferences are around, you know, how do you raise money as a CEO or as an investor, what should you look at in terms of companies? And what we wanted to shift a little bit is focus on what, what do you think about as an investor relative to if you're a board investor in a company and, and, and managing that, that, that team, and not the CEO, but the whole C-suite. And then vice versa, um, if you are part of the C-suite or you think about being in a C-suite or you, you are a CEO, um, you know, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, are best practices to be thinking about and, and what are some of the challenges? And, and uh, we'll talk a little bit in, in specifically, so what happens when sometimes there may need to be consideration of change? Again, it's not always the notion of, of change, but sometimes there's just a pressure point to say, okay, you know, you kind of work through those, those challenges, as, as, uh, as, as they say, um, and that's where you really learn, you know, well, what's going on. So we set together a, you know, a, a good panel here. We've got a mix of uh, uh, multiple-time CEOs of, of, of investors um, and businesses, as, as well as uh, an executive search person who does about 70% of his, his work in uh, Series A, B, and C's companies. So that is very much in the sweet spot of, of changing some really top talent at, uh, you know, in, in these organizations. Um, so if I'm going to ask the team to just kind of introduce yourselves and a little bit you know, in your background why it's relevant to, to the discussion today. Thanks. Omar? Uh, hi, Amar Sahani. I'm uh, uh, currently uh, uh, chairman of uh, a couple of companies. Oculus Therapeutics is a public company, and then uh, um, Instilla is a private company. Um, been an entrepreneur, I'm a chemical engineer by background, sort of technology guy, um, founded probably half a dozen companies uh, in the medtech biopharma uh, kind of spaces, and uh, started from ground zero, you know, first employee. Uh, working uh, on technology that was my technology with somebody else running the company to being the first founding CEO for several uh, or almost all of them. And um, until taking companies public, uh, profitable, um, until they were sold, uh, also having positions where I've transitioned myself out uh, from various things. So uh, hopefully I can contribute a little bit to that. Mira? Great, thanks. Um, so I'm Mira Sani, and um, she's my not related to me. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 no relation. Thanks. Although I wish I was related, because quite a successful uh, business person. Um, so maybe I could be adopted. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, um, so my career has been really focused around the successful commercialization of disruptive innovation, and uh, most recently, all in healthcare. And um, with that, I really have been you know, taking new ideas and, and figuring out how to get them out of the lab and, and into the market, into benefiting patients. And I think relevant for this panel, um, out of business school, um, another business school that's across the river um, from the one that most of you attended, um, I started a company um, there, so as a co-founder of a company, um, which eventually uh, was taken public. But in that company, we went through several iterations, because certainly out of business school, I didn't feel like I could continue being the CEO. We should bring in um, bring in a, a more professional CEO, and had some successes and some failures in, in doing that. Um, and then um, had been on the, the opposite side, so in a corporate role where we were acquiring companies. Um, and um, had that opportunity to, I guess, be the person that, that, that um, uh, reshaped the executive team of you know, companies following acquisition, as well as building out a, a team and scaling a business and um, ultimately selling a, a business unit to another large company. And then most recently, um, I'm the CEO of a 
startup in the Boston area um, where we make a synthetic cartilage and um, have been you know, building out that team and, and thinking about uh, how we build and scale that business. That's my hand now. Yep, Joe. Uh, Joe Mullings from the Mullings Group. Uh, MedTech search for 27 years. Uh, more than 6,000 placements in the MedTech space. And I personally have handled probably more than 200 C-level searches myself. What's interesting more than the C-level search are the conversations I've had because they're usually replacements. So my conversations have been with the board and the venture people about what went wrong with the position and also with the C-level people being replaced, their perspective as well. So uh, I've provided the uh, proverbial career couch to both sides uh, and have helped navigate through that and a large number of technologies, whether it's been data, structural heart, robotics. Um, so that's what I think I might be able to bring to the conversation. Well, good afternoon. I'm uh, Frank Gentile. I'm, um uh, a venture partner at Third Rock Ventures and also um, the uh, interim chief operating officer at a Third Rock, a very recent Third Rock launched company called Casma Therapeutics in Cambridge. Uh, I'm also a uh, chemical engineer by training. Uh, had a number of, um, of uh, different jobs in small and some large biotech companies. Uh, and then I spent about a decade on the buy side where I was uh, investing both in private and public companies. So some days I was a VC and some days I was a public equity guy and had the opportunity to both invest in and be on the boards of a number of both med tech companies and biotech companies. And then uh, over the last four years, I've been a, par a venture partner at Third Rock Ventures. Uh, Third, for those of you who don't know, Third Rock Ventures is a... Uh, is a uh, venture capital group we start that, that focuses mostly on starting companies versus investing in companies. We've probably started about 55 companies over four funds in the last 10 years. And uh, most of those companies are in the biotech space, but some of them are in the med tech space. And, um, and we spent a lot of time actually uh, thinking about who are gonna be the sort of C-level people in those companies um, from CEO, CSO, COO, CBO, et cetera. And, uh, and that's actually a big part of what we think about when we launch a company. So that's part of the reason that uh, I'm excited to be on this panel. Thank you. Great, thanks. So Frank, one of the things that we talked about on, on, the, on our prep call the other day was this notion that, that there are certain skills in the C-suite which will be internally focused and kind of inside versus outside. Mm -hmm. You can kind of talk through you know, some of those things and, and, and what that might mean. Sure, and so and so, just from so my perspective, first of all, I would say, um, you know, being in the C-suite, whether you're the CEO or the COO, et cetera, you know, no no one does it alone. You know, there's just doesn't exist. You know, it's all about forming you know the right partnerships with people. You know, a good CEO with it with a good CBO or a good CSO with a good CEO and and complementary skills. You know, typically in most of the companies that, that, that we focus on, the, the CEO is sort of, sort of that outward facing person, you know, interfaces with investors, uh, the face of the company with corporate partnerships, um, you know, et cetera, you know, tells the story at conferences. You know, the, the, the sort of CEO types are usually the ones that sort of, sort of stay home, make sure the trains are running on time. You know, um, but sometimes those roles are reversed depending on the skill set. You know, the, sometimes a CEO is very, kind of into the details and very sort of inward focused and very kind of program management process focused. And, and in those cases, then you want to couple that person with maybe a CBO or a CFO that would more be comfortable sort of being the face of the company. But I would say it's, it's no one does it alone and it's all about finding those partnerships. Having two kind of C-suite people that are kind of the same kind of person, that, that's usually kind of a recipe for a problem. You know, down the road, um, and and it's all and, and we spend a lot of time at Third Rock thinking about this. How do we couple, you know, the those sort of thought partnerships uh, together? So that's kind of how uh, we think about it. That's great. And then, so Omar, we talked about the notion of, um, you know, as a there's a certain inflection points, you know, often in, in, in a growth pattern, but then also inflection points when there's pressure on you as a CEO or you as an investor or the chairman to kind of say, okay. You know, do we have the right people around this company at this time? What what are what are some of those points and and you know those inflection points and and and, and other perspectives on that? 
Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, when you start out, uh, some of these uh, companies which are in medtech or biopharma, uh, initially they're science projects. So uh, if the science works, then you can build the rest of the company around that. But if the science is bad uh, or it's not working or for whatever reason, then, you know, it's hard to kind of go ahead and have all the trappings of the company of have the full management team and have a nice offices and labs and all of this stuff when the stuff's not working. So my view is that right at the beginning, you probably want to have an R&D heavy leadership. So we've actually gone away, or at least I've gone away from calling those people CEOs. So in the beginning, I kind of bring in people and call them a general manager uh, so that uh, the jury is out as to whether the general manager will become the CEO eventually when the company becomes real. But we keep it in such a stage where they are given the opportunity, but they're not necessarily given a commitment in that regard. So then you go forward. If the science works, then you have a mature conversation saying, what does the company need now? Stage appropriate, going from R&D to operational to commercial leadership that eventually the company will need. And we've uh, been able to do it uh, thoughtfully where the people sometimes have continued on certain roles or we've found another company where we can transition them out into where they're better suited to the earlier stage role. But I think if you're uh, aware not only of your strengths but more importantly of your weaknesses, that conversation is not hard to have. And having people who are self-aware in those things is, is important. And then you also talked about the, the notion of, you know, you've got these positive events that can happen in terms of, you know, changing when you get toward, you know, uh, public or, or needing to raise money, you start a clinical trial. Um, but then you also, we also talked, uh, maybe you brought up maybe somebody else, did, you know, what happens if you have a, a real challenge in, in the process? Obviously, if the, if the technology falls apart early, that that's, you know, whatever, that that's self-defining. But, you know, what if you're in a, in a clinical trial and you've got a, a, a failure compared to the primary endpoint or, you know, you've got a death or something like that? What, you know, what, what does the team need to be thinking about at that point? Again, these are the, the investors and also a little bit to the C-suite. What, 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 what should people be thinking about in those types of situations? So challenging situations like that uh, can and almost certainly will arise. In fact, almost all of my companies, uh, my wife kids me, they've always had near-death experiences and we've however refused to sort of give up. Maybe we're just dense, but we refuse to give up and somehow we pull a rabbit out of the hat. So how that can happen, I'll give you an example of a recent company, Claret. Uh, Claret uh, created the Sentinel filter, which is a filter after you do a heart uh, kind of valve replacement, a bunch of crud kind of goes up into the brain and can stroke people out. So we created these filters uh, to catch this emboli to prevent that from happening. Now, the primary endpoint was uh, some kind of a neurological test where you, you know, it's like an IQ test, not quite, but something like that. Uh, and the other endpoints were imaging tests to see. So uh, the IQ test endpoint, we missed. We, we didn't make it. Uh, but the image, when you kind of put up the images, one had a bunch of infarcts in the brain and the other didn't. So technically, we had failed it, and the company was sort of spiraling into a tough situation. And we, we did have the CEO who was a clinical stage, because this is what the company needed at that point in time. But we stepped up as the chair uh, people and the board members to support and actually put our money where our mouth is when the financing environment was a tough environment. And we, because my fundamental belief was that the technology was working, it just was a poor selection of the endpoint. FDA came in, um, set up a, a panel of experts, and they voted 19 to 1 for approval. Product got approved. We actually got a label for 60% stroke reduction because they put up those two pictures and said, which brain do you want? <laughs> and you know what? What's people, what are people going to pick? They picked the right one. That's right, that's great. So, uh, but it, what it did over there is that it caused the board and the ch chairman and the people to really kind of uh, believe in the technology. It's a, it's so I think a serious gut check of yeah. like, yeah, it wasn't just an investment. It was no. So ultimately, it boils down to: Do you have something of substance? Meaning, it's all, it's a very fundamental thing that if you're going to work on something, and work hard and spend a lot of time on it, you should be working on something that is significant, that is meaningful. Because if that's there and you've got good data, the rest of it will fall into place. You just have to believe that. Anything else to add, Frank? I'll just say. Yeah, um, uh, I'm just going to give you a sort of a, a, a sort of a vignette from sort of sort of the public investing side, and public investors, you know, often, 
you know, go to bed at night and then wake up in the morning and one of their public investment companies sort of has data, you know, material uh, data that they'll, they'll put out there that a trial has failed or a patient has died in a trial or something like that. And the thing that frustrates a public investor and a board, actually, for that matter, more the most is when they tell you, um, we don't know what we're going to do now. We need to sort of think about that a little bit. And we don't know what to do. We don't know what our plan is going forward. And just give us a period of time. Now, the fact is, for analyzing the data in the trial, that's perfectly reasonable response that we know, you know, we, we, we mean, need to dig into the data. And we're informing the street. But in a situation where a trial is just an absolute zero, a pivotal trial, no, no, no chance of approval. I, I get uh, investors get frustrated because somewhere, in a drawer somewhere, there should be an envelope that says, "In case of trial failure, this is the plan going forward." And a good management team, will, even even though even though biotech and medtech and and entrepreneurs are optimistic by nature, and investors are certainly optimistic by nature, especially private investors. You know, those things happen, and you need to, you know, the the. Our better CEOs and, and, and COOs and C-suite people sort of think about that ahead of time and, and know exactly what they're going to do in the event that the product is an absolute zero and not going to go anywhere, and, and then can inform their investors. And that's, that's a sign of sort of maturity. That's great. Thanks. Uh, Joe? So to that point, and my reference on that is I always get called in when the train wreck has occurred. And when you start a medical device company or biotech company, it's highly predictable on, in an ideal world, what the path is going to be, whether it's clinical lifting, regulatory lifting, reimbursement, but it's highly predictable. And so your selection on your CEO, where I see the blind spots a lot of time, is you want to, as a board um, or the selection committee, identify the weakness before the train wreck exposes it. And that's really important because as you pick a leader, um, you have to count on something going sideways, and you need to investigate that or interview for that. Or if there's a sitting founder, you need to have that conversation beforehand. And that pre-frames the scenario of replacing or augmenting that position. So that's really critical to understand that as you as the selection committee um, or the venture people putting up the money need to expose the weakness before it occurs. Um, and then have a, a conversation in place before that, along the lines of which is Frank shared. It's good, thanks. So before we get into some some, some further questions, I mean, any, let me just take a early pause for questions from the audience. No, okay, let's let's keep going. So maybe we just kind of do a quick round robin. Um, so if you were to give one piece of advice to uh, to a, an investor, or a, a board member. Um, about how they should be acting relative to the to the board, um, you know, what what would that be? Again, we spent a lot of time, you know, making sure that investors are picking the right company to invest in, but I'm not convinced that all board members um, and HBS grads are, are, are who are investing in companies are are really, you know, doing as good a job of actually managing the C-suite as they could. So if you could you know, give some some thoughts or some some insights to to uh, you know, something you might uh, you know give uh, an investor to talk about how they how they would manage the uh, the board. So Amir, maybe you can go first. Sure, thanks. So um, I've definitely been involved with boards that are pretty dysfunctional, and also boards that have been um, been been really great. And I you know happen to fortunately be in a really uh, really great functional board p uh, position right now. I think um, how many people? So since no one wanted to ask us a question, how many people are involved in a startup currently? Okay, good, good. So we got the right group in here. Um, I mean, I'm not all right. <laughs> or in, you know, in some way. But why right? are the rest so, of you here? No. <laughs> no. They, they, they aspire. Uh, I know, to be, I paid them, so it's all good. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, yeah, we're getting our numbers up. So, so I think um, the big difference, you know, when you're a public company board, you know, it's a little more hands off, um, it's a little more distant. Um, it, it's just, it's like a different type of interaction. It's more formalized. And I think the earlier stage you get, the more, um, a little more hands-on the, the board can be. Um, and I think that it's important to still realize, um, I guess if you're on a board or you're, you're involved with a board, that um, the way people kind of manage up and manage down and, and lead the organization can be very different. So I think that the advice I would give Peter would be that you're, you know, don't confuse kind of the boardroom 
presentation, showcasing, you know, outward speaking on the speaking circuit with how the person is actually leading, you know, operating as a leader. And so if you work in a larger organization, you often have these kind of skip level meetings, um, management meetings where you, you know, you might not talk to your direct reports, but to the, you know, one level down. And so I, I would encourage the board members to, you know, make sure that they're looking at the whole team, not just um, having interactions with the CEO. Because there's a lot of times that board just don't seem to be really aware of what, what's going on, and I think just by having that interaction, they could. That's great. Okay, thanks. Um, maybe Joe, you could. Uh, <coughs> sure. Give so a um, this is a fun one. So <laughs> <laughs> get to give advice. He likes that. Yeah. So there's there are three um, sort of points of guidance I, I suggest investing is who is the CEO, um, and then with that, what are the risks over the next 24 months with this proposition. And probably the most important is what coaching assets are available to the current sitting CEO. Um, too many times there's not enough coaching going on, like constructive coaching. Um, too many boards' mindset or even VCs' mindset is, how do we fire the bastard? Um, and instead, um, it should be what are the coaching assets we can uh, provide to them. And I'm not talking about coaching from the board itself because that's too interim is what are, what are the, the coaching assets outside of a board and a VC influence of a quarterly meeting that are available? And I would really want to know that because a lot is riding on that role. Great. Thanks, Jeff. And Frank? So um, I'll start by saying nothing upsets a board member more than being surprised. And, um, and so um, a CEO, the, the better CEOs never surprise board members. They never, they never, so, so usually a lot of the work of a board meeting actually happens kind of in advance of the board meeting, and the board meeting can usually be kind of boring in that regard, but that's a good thing because the board is then informed and engaged. The second thing that upsets a board member is when there's a problem and the CEO says, here's a problem, what do you guys think? You know, uh, and um, that's, you know, I sort of think of that as like the jump ball, you know, and then, and then the board meeting usually devolves into something awful, you know, um, and when that happens. And so the better CEOs say, keep, the, keep their board members informed, especially when there are problems, and then come to the board meeting and in conjunction with their board members say, um, here's the problem, here are three solutions, here's why one and two don't work, and here's why we have to do three. And, you know, because boards in many ways, they want to be led somewhere. Right, and so now let me flip the other side of that. If you're gonna, if you are gonna expect a CEO to do that, and sort of be thoughtful and do that and communicate and things like that, you have to make yourself accessible. Okay, you can't just say, "I'm just gonna show up the day of the board meeting and I'll figure it out there and I'll figure it out on the fly." You have to actually be accessible and be a partner to the CEO. And um, and I just love the concept actually uh, that Mira said about sort of that skip level meetings. You want the CEO also to be very open and allow his people and the people that report to them actually to be able to interact with a board member, especially when there's a problem. And so, but, but the onus on the board member is to be accessible, you know, and to be engaged um, in those kinds of things. That's great, all right, thanks. Mm -hmm. and, and Amar? Uh, so, okay, so when, when I um, put together boards, so there's board participation uh, and I tend not to sit on boards that uh, aren't, you know, within our portfolio kind of mm -hmm. companies. So uh, anyway, uh, so when we put together the boards, uh, I want to make sure that we are picking each board member for a particular reason where they are going to be the expert and know more than any of the other board <laughs> members and the CEO on that particular topic. So that you can, so not all voices are equal in that regard. You really pay attention. And then encourage those particular board members to have almost offline meetings with the company and come in and spend. So like actually on Monday I go out and I'll spend two days with uh, one of the stroke companies that is there in our portfolio. And uh, we'll sit down with the entire management meeting, management and really drill into the technology because I'm a technology guy. So we'll spend two full days talking about this stuff. So that if it's a commercial thing, then bring that person in and spend a lot more time. So there is that, exposure which is deeper than the exposure you would just get at a board meeting level because there's oftentimes not enough time to talk about these types of details in a board meeting and you're constantly running short of time so 
By doing this, then you can pre-digest, and then the information that is shared at the board meeting uh, can be, you know, sort of validated by an offline uh, discussion that I had. The other thing is uh, uh, communication. I think um, uh, keeping people, if there's an evolving emerging situation, then keeping people posted in short board calls and not only waiting for a board meeting would be uh, another way to kind of make sure that nobody is caught surprised by something that wasn't talked about. I also try not to present a completely pre-digested view. I used to do this earlier because I would, I used to feel that if I don't come in and give them a complete uh, solution, they'll look at me as saying I'm not sure as to I know what I'm doing. You don't want to be the other extreme where you come in, like Frank said, and saying, so what do we think we should do? At the same time, I didn't want to come in and present a complete pre-digested thing because then the board doesn't feel involved. They don't feel that they're contributing. So you have to kind of draw up the appropriate straw man, point out the pros and cons of the situation, and then have a little bit of discussion and evolve with a consensus around it. That's where the board is involved in the process. They've given some thought to it, but they've not just been fed, you know, pre-digested mush. Gotcha. Okay. That's good. So I'm going to get to go through it in kind of more rapid fire, and you just give one or two sentences and move on, and I'll... I'll cut you off after you know after a little bit. So let's just start with um, you know what is one of the one of the more unappreciated skill that should be in in a uh, in a in a CEO or a C-suite member. So starting with you, Frank, an underappreciated skill. Uh, I would say just in the rapid fire way, um, sort of building the culture of the company, and um, you know small companies, small numbers of people. I think culture turns out to be very important, and especially in this day and age when so many people can have multiple job offers and kind of go to work anywhere, creating sort of a culture in your company where people want to come to work for your company, it's also a, a tool of retention. And, and a lot of that does start kind of in the C-suite, you know, okay. you know, it's extremely important. Good. Thanks, Joe. Um, along Frank's line, I would say the ability to hire the right people, because a cohesive team uh, adds to speed. Uh, accuracy uh, and on, on a startup really helps on the burn. So if I can hire the right people and reduce my time to exit by seven or eight months, and I've got a three to five hundred thousand dollar burn, that's important. Okay, Mira. Wow, oh, we've we've been brainwashed. I think I, I was also going to say really the team um, and building the skill of building a team. But to kind of add to I guess what Frank said, um, I would say maybe as the CEO, you have um, kind of how you exact your values is what you do speaks more than what you say so I think how you portray your values and how you hire people not just based on fit like oh this person is like me um, you know the opposite of that but at least do they have the same values they can be very different from you but have um, value the same things and that will build a strong culture good thanks uh, one of the things I try to do is to uh, value competence uh, over loyalty I think a blind loyalty uh, leads to people following um, leaders who may not have the right value system. So, but if you're competent, and then loyalty comes as a has a basis for it, which is there is respect uh, that is born out of competence. And when the team, which may have complementary skill sets, respects each other for what they bring to the table, cohesivity results. Great, thanks. Um, so let's go a little bit uh, afield. Um, what do you think is going to be the impact, or, or not, um, of, of of technology um, on, on on people in the in, in, in the C-suite, either in terms of how they they run their their own personal life, or I mean their their their, their job, or the way they have to staff their staff their company, and and just the decisions they're making today versus what a CEO may have done ten years ago in terms of you know the things they're doing for their first 24 months. So maybe we'll go opposite, or may Amar real, real quick, one, two sentences. So uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, it depends on the stage of the company. I think if you're a commercial operation, uh, uh, then the analytics that uh, you use to be able to get a dashboard view of your company is very different than if you're an early stage operation where you're basically a science project, as I mentioned. So I think uh, uh, as the operation becomes more complex, uh, I think having uh, uh, data-driven analytic decisions and having a view of the complexity in front of you through some kind of a dashboard 
uh, I would I would recommend people Great. do that. Okay, good. Thanks, Amira. Um, yes. Yeah, so two two big things that I've seen from my first startup, which is maybe 15 years ago, to this one is is really um, the availability of, of different SaaS applications that allow you to do things and be much more um, efficient, even with, say, your recruiting um, funnel and, and applicants and, and everything. And then the second is kind of that evolution of kind of the gig economy where people, you, you just have a lot available to you a lot more um, fractional workers, whether it's with, you know, Upwork or, you know, having a logo contest or, or something. You, you don't have to hire a big firm and have them do everything for you. You can have experts um, do each piece, and that, that's hugely advantageous for yeah, that, small companies. That's great. That's an even better question than tech. It's actually the culture of uh, millennials and stuff. Okay, Joe? Um, the embracing of tech in order to deliver your brand and what you're doing to the market on a single platform like LinkedIn. So you can, you can create an awareness around your technology in a very early seed stage and you can attract potential partners, acquirers, investors uh, at scale. And you weren't able to do that, or you had to beg for a phone call, or you had to go to a show and spend ungodly money. So tech from that side um, is incredibly powerful, and there's um, hundreds of millions of eyes, and in the med tech industry, hundreds of thousands of people who are watching every day. So I think tech allows you to spread your word like never before, if you have a good word to spread. And if you haven't been to, to, to Mulling's group, uh, you know, LinkedIn site, go to it, take a taste of it. It's, it's, it's quite uh, effective on building, building that brand and also just kind of connecting with, you know, educating people in, in, in the field. It's, it's, I assume it's pretty uh, cost effective or, or, you know, a lot of leverage from it. Frank? So um, I, I think the comments that the other panelists made were really just spot on, and um, but I'll sort of take a different tact if you don't mind, in, uh, and that is especially in a sort of a therapeutically based company, you know, the ability to sort of get information on what's a product doing in an animal model and in a in a human before you actually see a functional endpoint is just getting more and more important and so the technology around developing sort of imaging biomarkers i think is just uh, exploding right now and and i think just going to be more and more important that allows you to you know, have a better sense of the product, the potential product engaging a target, you know, before you have any kind of functional endpoint, and, and that allows you actually to fail a, um, uh, a product sooner rather than later, and that's extremely important, in, especially in, as, uh, as our industry, especially the therapeutic industry, moves to more and more personalized medicine, more and more novel targets. Great, thanks. All right, so the next question is going to be, um, and this is advice to uh, to a board or potentially to a selection committee for, uh, for 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 candidates. You know what is what is a a a, a skill or something which is overhyped, overindexed. People look for too slavishly in in what they're going to get for a CEO. Which again, it's you know central casting or, or not just looks, but just kind of just certain things people assume that they need to have for that CEO from a skill set or other uh, perspectives that, for whatever reason, get, get over-indexed, over-emphasized, and, and, and probably if, if, if you're on a board selection committee, you should, you should kind of like pause about whether that's, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about that clearly. Um, so I'll start with uh, Joe. Um, direct, in the, direct industry experience, uh, headlines over substance. So I watch too many times that I want somebody out of structural heart, I want somebody out of robotics, I want somebody out of data. Um, I have a very easy visual for all my engineers in the room. Um, IQ, or industry knowledge, is sort of the tip of the lever to get underneath the mass that you're trying to move. But the real leverage comes on the EQ side, the softer skills. And after about 30, 40, 60 days, industry knowledge, quite honestly, drops down dramatically without that EQ. So if you just think about a lever arm, that lever arm, certainly you have to get underneath that, but that's a short-term value. The long-term value add is the long lever arm on the IQ. So don't hire headlines. You certainly need competency, as Amar had mentioned, but um, stop with the headlines and stop with mandating industry experience. Okay, thanks, thanks. Uh, Mira? 
Yeah, so, so you took my, my number one um, thing from all my hiring experience as well as even my in personal interviewing experience is definitely the domain expertise. People way over lever, lever that. Um, and it's a checkbox approach. It's really easy to do it, to say, I need someone with exactly this type of women's health experience in this specialty. And that, that person could not be, you know, maybe they're not qualified like as a strategic person, but, it, but it's much harder to do those other things. So, so I'll pick a different one. So the, the different one would be, um, um, I just start up panel, I want to be controversial, but I've definitely, I've been told um, that I wasn't picked because I didn't look uh, like a CEO. Um, so I don't know, we all look pretty different up here in this picture, but, <laughs> but I'll just leave it at that. Um, I, would, I would just say that you know, we, we're all socialized in a certain culture and wherever we grew up, and so you know, I probably have those same biases too. I probably think that I don't look like a CEO, but um, it's, it's, it's in there. So I would just, um, just remind people to, to, yeah. to not um, you know, realize that, that that's probably there in their brain somewhere. Yeah. Good, thanks. Uh, Omar? So yeah, so I gotta keep in mind this is not how you run things because yeah. you, you it, it just kind of to uh, to uh, yeah. so to keep on you know you got some HBS investors fifteen yeah. years out or whatever. So I was gonna say HBS degree, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's way over indexed. <laughs> Good. He, he's Maybe going off of my keeping it, keeping it <laughs> real. <laughs> Maybe that, not, not that one, huh? <laughs> okay. Well. Uh, I, I, I think uh, having the usual corporate brands on there, so large company brands, com you know, if, uh, if you're in a product, having managing a billion dollar PNL, but did you create that PNL versus manage the PNL? But two very different things. Both people can say they've got a billion dollar PNL they were responsible for, but the guy who or gal who created that, I have a lot more respect for than the one who sort of trimmed and pruned it a little bit. Great, thanks. And Frank? So um, I, I think the, the panel here just hit it spot on on, on some of these things. Um, I, I, uh, I, I once did an analysis at Third Rock, you know, 300 biotech IPOs since 2013, and how many of them were under, under their IPO price uh, about a year ago, and a high fraction of that, and then looking at the ones that were above their IPO price and looking at sort of the CEOs in those companies and what fraction of those were first-time CEOs versus not, and a high fraction of successful biotech companies are sort of first-time CEOs. Um, I'm not sure what's underneath that, but I would say um, I agree with everything that, that, that the panel said, but one thing I would sort of, uh, my caution would be, um, and this is something that we run into all the time at, at Third Rock, when you... Um, when you, th when you think you have to hire somebody who has to be the smartest person in the room, that's usually a big mistake. And, and if they act like they have to be the smartest person in the room, it means that they can't listen. And that goes back to what Peter said about, sort of the, the, uh, Joe said about the softer skills, you know, that ability to listen and to engage in a partnership with the other members of the C-suite there is sort of critically you know, important and probably the most important skill. And, and you know, anybody, and you see it time and time again that those that feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room usually fail. And so you were actually referring to what Omar said about the HBS thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so let's open it for questions. We give, give it a shot. We got a lot of people in the in industry. So Mike. Becoming, um, becoming frugal with uh, the spending of funds uh, bef uh, way too late. Um, so I, I see people really start to freak out, um, and it's too late when you start to freak out about the money, and I'm watching a couple of our very good clients do that right now. So um, remain frugal um, throughout. No, okay. no, 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 no
that's an amazingly good question, first of all. And it is the, sort of probably among the number one problems that, that happen, especially in med tech companies, I, you know, at least been, in my experience. It's a hugely important, it's a, it's a huge problem. Sometimes, especially science, sometimes scientific founders just don't have those softer skills. And that's really what sinks them. You know, the ones that, that Joe was talking about, sort of that EQ, that's really what, what sinks them. They have great passion. They may attract awesome people, have huge loyalty uh, in the company, but just don't have that soft skills. My experience is that when you try to like make a change and then try to keep that person still around, so they move from CEO to maybe CSO or CTO, and you haven't had that conversation from day one, then it, you might as well just get them completely out of the company. You know, at that point, um, because it almost never works. Because then you're, you're, you know, they they insist on staying on the board, and they have their own pipeline to the board members, and then the new CEO has to sort of always constantly look over his shoulder. And it's not. Tr it's also true of um, founders that are CSOs in companies. They feel like they have their own conduit to the board, and the CEO is constantly looking over his shoulder. It never, never ends well. So. Piggyback on Frank's point, so if you look at it, and you can't blame the, the, the founder because they were rewarded because they knew the tech so well since the day they founded that. So the reward system there was good for you, good for you, good for you. They never switch out of that, and they don't realize there's a point, there's a crossover when the business becomes more important than the technology. And so they've been rewarded as the technologist for a really long time, but now as the investors come in and you move from a seed round of friends and family to a, 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 you know, a fiduciary responsibility, and you now have to move that person over, and the business is more important than the tech, it doesn't process. And so that's, that's a very interesting transition that not many people navigate well. Um, I would add that there's a situation that I think it can, um, that the person can transition to, which is more um, what you see with a lot of academic founders. So a lot of academic founders that keep their role at a university um, environment, they are the tech, you know, they have the brain trust from a technology standpoint. And often they never move into the operational role, which is probably good because they're not operators, they're not um, executors, they're not business people. Um, so when you have a technical founder, that can be a great role, um, the advisory role. Um, where you know you can call, I'll call you. Don't call me. You know, don't, don't, you know, kind of, kind of things. So you can still pick their brain. They're usually brilliant people, so um, that can work um, very well. I've seen that work. Am I anything to add in terms of? Uh, okay, good. Chris. Or? So uh, a couple of things that we tend to do is, uh, you know, if you've been in the industry for a reasonable period of time, you typically will know people uh, who can give you sort of the, uh, they're not sort of on the <coughs> reference list, but they can give you a real, real reference as to what they think. So I think getting a sounding of that is pretty important because there's no way, as you can say, anybody can game an interview a little bit and they all are on their best behavior. So it's hard to get the real story that way. So that's one thing that you would uh, do. The other thing that uh, has been useful is uh, to have uh, a little bit of a search uh, committee. So uh, when, when we were looking for, say, a particular board member or uh, uh, a CEO replacement, then uh, initially you have an interview which is within the company, a couple of people kind of uh, do it. But then the CEO, current CEO and this, the CFO or something. And then after that, uh, expand it to a small group of the board uh, who can bring different perspectives and somebody who is very good at empathic kind of determination, somebody who's very good at the industry vertical so uh, and technical kind of evaluation, and then get those perspectives uh, uh, coming uh, from them. So use your board members and use your uh, industry presence to get unofficial references. Other question? Go ahead. Yeah. 
ones that were successful were the, the ones that had, uh, and none of them, basically none of them had met their original business plan, as, as it was written. Mm -hmm. But the ones that were successful had all changed, whether different technology, different market, different, different whatever. Yet, you know, few and, you know, relatively few management teams are able to do that. And, you know, rather than, you know, firing the bastards, uh, how do you guys think about from the board side or investment side or from the, you know, think about how do you find <coughs> Or from the management team, how do you think of finding resources to enable you to do that when the time comes? Because the odds are, sometime that's going to come. <clears throat> so one of the things I interview for all the time in my firm and my client's firm is agility, right? Because you know the change is going to come, whether it's a clinical reg reimbursement change. So you want to look for specific examples, like really tough examples of demonstrated agility. Because any company that starts at, at, at A and is trying to go to Z is gonna zigzag the whole way. And the ability to minimize that zigzag and those oh shit moments rather than panic, but have the agility to look for a problem and then solve it is critical. So you want to interview for agility and there's, there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. Other questions? I tend to look for uh, unanimity. I think uh, the it's one of those things that you know when you met somebody, you feel there's it's a gut feel, and your gut is reading a lot more than what the piece of, piece of paper is saying. And I think the gut feel is telling you about culture fit. It's telling you about values. Those don't come across on the paper. So I think paying attention to that. But you know, each any of us can be read, led astray. But when collectively people have that feeling, I think they are generally. So it, it's about, you know, if, if, if even when creating a board or creating a scientific advisory group, um, there's a method to doing that uh, where you don't want to hire everybody who looks the same kind of a thing. Uh, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they are, from a value system, their true north is aligned, while their individual uh, technical or whatever competences may lie in orthogonal directions, uh, but they're all pointed from a value system. So though, when they are giving you a consistent read on value systems, then the piece of paper has to be approved by everybody anyway. You know, you look at it and saying they've got the necessary skills which you've laid down in your job description, so that's fine, but then uh, assessing that and then finally reference checks, you, you can't go wrong. That's great, thanks. So, so a quick question for, we'll start, we'll just Joe and go around. So. What's the dynamic like when there is a board member who is saying, you know, I think we should get rid of the CEO, and it may not go all the way to, to get rid of the CEO, but kind of how does that um, uh, unfold? Um, and, you know, how, how, do, how should a board member think about handling that? So um, that becomes uh, a little complicated scenario it always dictates. Um, but the first thing you want to find out is, is it behavioral um, or is it scenario-based? Um, so those are two areas, and they're two different forks in the road, right? Is, is this person just doesn't have the clinical experience to get us through this pivot point we need because we didn't need endpoints or something went sideways? But if it's behavioral, um, that you need to terminate quickly um, because then it just ends up being the person is breaking under pressure um, or they don't have the tools, and the rest of the team sees it before the board does. I can guarantee you that. Yep, good. Okay, Frank, what's your take on, on those types of scenarios? I, I think this is uh, this is usually the biggest problem uh, that a board has when they're not aligned on that particular issue. That some board members sort of see that, and some don't, or some are more loyal. Or um, it, um, it there's no good solution to that. And I've been involved in sort of situations just like that, where where one board member really wanted to get rid of the CEO, and the others were kind of hedging a little bit on that, they, all, they almost always don't end well. They always eventually wind up in the termination of the CEO. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I think listening, you know, and as a, you know, and investors have sort of different, sometimes investors, while, while they're supposed to put on their 
fiduciary responsibility to the company hat sometimes think in terms of their own investment, um, and and um, and that's a problem also. But um, um, as I was saying, I think that um, it's important that the investors do their best, especially the board member investors, do their best to be aligned themselves on what they're looking for and what the goals are. And I'm, I'm totally on board with Joe that if it's a behavioral issue specifically, that, that's usually something that's not going to go away. Great. And real quick, Mira or Amar, anything to join to add to that? I think it's a question of uh, uh, very few people can change at the stage of their lives that they are a CEO from a fundamental character point. So if there's a character issue or there is a behavioral issue, you've got to kind of make the change immediately. If there is a technical competence issue that can be backfilled by hiring somebody, either a board member or a management team member, then that could be considered. So I think you have to kind of parse it out. There is a uniform. What, what about a third scenario where, the, like they said, they've kind of like they, they've lost the team. So it's not like behavior in a, in a bad way around their right. behavior, and it's not really the technical, but it's just kind of like they they haven't had that EQ. They've, they've or whatever they've, they've lost the team for whatever reason. Do you? Yeah, so I think the team, if the team has lost uh, kind of either respect for them or they are not effective in that role anymore because, so we had this issue, uh, Sadra Medical, which is a company we, in the, uh, uh, the Lotus Heart Valve that Boston Scientific uh, sells. Um, the CEO, friend of ours, uh, helped him found the company, but had kind of uh, gone to a stage where he wasn't effective at this point in time and the company was in a financing challenge. We actually had to go in and fire our friend, put him on the board, but take him out as the CEO role, hire in a different CEO, get the financing done, fix the product, and eventually sold the company for $500 million to Boston Scientific. So it can be done uh, in those types of situations. Mm -hmm. You just have to tell them, saying, look, you're more effective at this stage. You're not being effective gotcha. anymore. Gotcha. That's good. And, and Mira? Uh, I don't have anything to add there. Okay. <laughs> good. Okay, well, well real, real quick. Oh, um, so I, th I think it's actually, I mean, we go through these exercises of sort of values, you know, what are, what are our values of the company? What's important to us as a company? And I think that's critically important when the company, you do that when the company is about 20, 20-ish people. That's when you sort of do that exercise because you have enough differing views there. And you do that exercise, you come up with whatever your values are. At that, from that point forward, it's important that you live those values and you refer to them and you think about them and they're, they're not just sort of on a wall somewhere, but, but as you think about decision making, that the, the company is constantly referring back to what are our values? What are our values? Why is this important? There are great examples of this. You know, when J&J &J had the Tylenol problem, they had a, they're, they're, they had a very strong value system to, for patient safety, and they did all the right things to, to cope with that. Other companies whose value system was more geared to profits and loss didn't do the right things in similar situations. And so it's important that you, you have those values, you live those values, you constantly refer to them, and they're your sort of north star, as they said. And that, therefore, and then when other people come into the equation, when you go from 20 to 50 to 100, if you have a culture of constantly referring to those values and using them and talking about them, then that actually keeps the sort of the culture more or less intact. There's always a change in bigger numbers, but I think I think the the values as a touchstone is always, is sort of critically important there. And it's not just a we're going to put this on the wall and be done uh, exercise. It's it's living them. That's the the key, in my opinion. Let me just jump on that for a quick second before yep. we're done. And so it should never be a surprise when somebody comes in on what the culture is, because you should make sure through the interview process you make it very very clear what your North Star is and what your expectations are and allow that individual then to self-select out if it doesn't match. So when they come in, there's no surprise. So that's super important. And um, it's when you don't define that and you front up front just to get the hire. And that's where I see a lot of problem is you'll tell the hire a story which is outside what your North Star is and that's when you start to have the friction inside that's not healthy friction. I would just say in terms of um, uh, stating the values clearly, 
uh, and talking about them important. Teaching uh, comes from not only positive situations, where, but also from situations where you took action when it didn't measure up to the value. So, uh, so at Augmentix, uh, one of the companies which was recently acquired a couple of weeks ago that we had, uh, patients first do the right thing. We had a situation and one of the sales folks was uh, trying to sort of, you know, uh, oversell the va value proposition or, uh, you know, do certain quid pro quo trades and stuff of some other manufacturer that was stocking a different product, but complicated situation, but it didn't fly with the value system we had. The moment we found out about it, we terminated them and two or three other people were involved. It sends a message to the rest of the organization very clearly, and uh, you know that aligns people pretty quickly. So nothing spreads faster. Um, I'll just add this because yeah, everyone's chiming in on your question. Um, so I think in terms of scale up, um, probably you guys have heard of the Amazon's like two pizza rule. So you know you're at the small size, you can you can feed your whole team with two pizzas. So that's like the size where you know everything about everyone, and so that's like really nice, and you don't have to have a lot of kind of governance um, and think about that and think about how you communicate. And then kind of you're at the 20 person size, and that's kind of another value, uh, another inflection point. Um, and then you're in this kind of so that so at that point you're still kind of um, you know everyone's kids and their spouses and, and everything is what you can you can lead and operate the organization in a different way but then when you get to like 100 people um, that's when you start to not know everyone as personally you kind of cross over the 100 person and you start to really have to think about um, kind of organizational design and you know what types of meetings you have who interacts with who how you do all those things so I kind of think about it in terms of the number of people that you have to touch different types of industries you know maybe in pharma or biotech it's a little different and devices where you're actually commercial, um, what phase you're commercial, but I kind of tend to think of it that way in terms of how your human interactions are and whether you can you know, look the person in the eye about values and you, you know everything about them or whether it's starting to get a little distant and you have to tell those stories um, to reinforce the culture and, and that becomes more important. Um, yeah. Any question? Okay, one, one, one last for me then. Um, we talked about changing out the CEO because of behavior or whatever. How often, in, in your experience for your industry, would you expect to change out a CEO because they're at a point in their evolution as a company between founding and, say, going public or an acquisition, which we talked learned about earlier, it could be eight years um, after founding, where it's really just it's 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 time for someone with a different set of skill sets to come in and and and, and run that ship for the next four years or whatever that is. How, how common is that? Maybe, Frank, if you could start with that. Again, not necessarily from your particular view, which is a little bit Third Rock special, but just kind of how often do you think that happens? Um, uh, just sort of speaking more biotech-y, actually, yeah. uh, you know, on that, I don't think it happens that much. I think it's more the, it's more the CEO, it's his, himself or herself that, that, would, that sort of gets to a point and says, you know, I brought this as far as I'm going to bring it, and 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 goes to the board and says I'm ready to uh, to sort of give the reins to somebody else. So, for example, um, we have a really successful company in the portfolio, Agios. Uh, the person who, uh, who uh, was the CEO in that company, David Shenkine, was a first-time CEO. Amazing job. Two drugs approved within 10 years. You know, he could have stayed there as long as he wanted. It's 500 people now, or something like this, and. Um, and you know, he just took a step back and says, you know, it's time for me to move on. Company's entering a whole different phase, yeah. very commercial. Probably better to have a more commercial-minded CEO. And and I and I see that yeah. more okay. than than the other side of that. Good, Joe. I think that it tends to shift basis on where we are in the business model. So discovery, uh, 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 product development, and then commercialization. So I've seen it usually in the life of a company, seven eight years. It's usually a two a two uh, CEOs. Sweet swap out. Okay. Thanks, Mira. Yeah, yeah, the same, the same thing. Kind of, there's the innovation, the execution, and then commercialization, and those are all opportunities. But I don't think it's it's a prerequisite. I think people can um, can can bridge that if, if they want to, if they have the interest, if they have the skill set. Um, it, it should be more of an individual decision. And I think I would caution boards from thinking that okay, now because we're going commercial. We, we need to 
do the nuclear option and remove this person, I think you need to have the conversation, is that what they really want to do? Is that something that's interesting to them? Is commercialization interesting, really, for this um, really super smart researcher person? Or do they really want to you know, have find a different role? Okay, great. Thanks. Anything to add to that? I would just say that, you know, uh, you look at the growth of the CEO and you look at the growth of the company and when they are, uh, when the growth of the CEO is constraining the growth of the company, it's time for a change. Mm -hmm. All right, well, thank, thank you very much, everybody. Yeah. Thanks.